Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Uh, what's cracking, beer lovers? What's up, friends? How we doing? Hope all is well. All is well. We are finishing up some Crowded Barrel, the, the Eleanor bourbon right now. Shout out. Uh, ATX. Yep. Always. Um, we decided to have a dram with our last episode. It was, uh, it was a comforting piece to a hard conversation for me. So. Yeah. <laughs> a, a nice good whiskey was, was good with that one. Yeah, we talked about some religious trauma last episode. Mm. It do be like that sometimes. It do be like that sometimes. I got mad religious trauma. I'm happy to talk about religious trauma and um, hopefully make the world a better place because part of the reason religious trauma is such a big deal is because we don't talk about it. The stigma around it. Same thing as mental health. I got mad religious trauma. My religious trauma is so bad, I can't listen to uh, Christian music. Yeah. Oh, yeah, same. Me neither. Me neither. Um, I have not stepped foot other than for funerals and weddings and an actual church in so long. I made it, I made it through a song and a half and a funeral the other day, uh, mm. before I had to step out, which that's saying something. Yeah. That was a couple, I guess that was about a month ago. Yeah. All right. So tell me about some beers, bro. All right. Beer, 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 beer. Um, so... Who, Machete, uh, Danny Trejo, right? That's his name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Machete. Machete. <laughs> Dead, bro. Uh, he has a Mexican craft lager. Um, and I am super excited. Because uh, it's, <laughs> I am super excited about this. Is it really his label or is the face just look like him? Nah, big dog. It says Trejo Cerveza. Uh, <laughs> and that's Machete, bro. I'm dead, bro. Uh, I did not know that when I looked at it. Yeah. Uh, that's so funny. Pilsner Mall. Uh, if you didn't know, Clayton loves Mexican lagers. I really do. I was drinking Modelo Especial earlier. I love, love Mexican lagers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not really much to say about like the the hop or uh, malt blend, um, and then it is brewed in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, cheese country. Uh, Lincoln Beer Company, born in Mexico, brewed in the USA, is what it says on the can. That's some American exceptionalism for you, right there. <laughs> It's 4.7 ABV, and I'm excited. Dope. Um, I have one from, I don't even know who this is from. Oh. Okay, so I guess this is from Salt Life Beverage Company. Interesting. Salt I didn't Life, know Salt Life had a beverage company. Salt Life Beverage LLC in Abita Springs, Louisiana. Um. 
It's an American lager. It says the flavor is crisp, clean, and refreshing. And it's called the Salt Life Lager. It's a salty state of mind. 4.5% ABV. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Let's, we'll figure let's it out. Let's give it a go. My guess is that this is some kind of like macro produced brew that's on a private label. Yeah, I think so. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, that's sweeter than I would expect. Oh, but there's that, there's that Mexican malt. Ooh. That's real good. That's really good. Yeah? Yeah. I like that a lot, which is good because two weeks in a row, I you had, had crap duds. beers. Yeah. I had I tried, duds. Okay, I tried both of Clayton's beers off camera. So uh, to be fair, we used to do this thing called uh, a can swap. Yeah, taste swap, can swap. But then I didn't like it, so I got it out. <laughs> but so I tried Clayton's both of the Clayton's beers the last two weeks off air. They were absolute shit. They were horrible. When Clayton gave the first, when Clayton gave one a zero, I was like, "Bro, this is cold." And then I tried it, was like, "Nah, it's dead to me too." (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. It was bad. It's awful. And when, yeah, okay. So I've had duds the last two weeks. It is refreshing to have a good one. Um, I am sitting. This might be a little bit more generous because I'm happy I have a good beer. Clay's about to give inflated scores, people. I'm sitting at like a like realistically seven seven one. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. I wouldn't call it super inflated, but it definitely is a little bit. Um, I would totally drink this beer again, like for sure, for sure. Money. Mine's exactly what you'd expect it to be. Um, there's no creativity behind it. It's absolutely mass-produced and private-labeled. Um, it's drinkable. It tastes fine. But, like, nah. If we're, yeah. if we're rating craft beer, this is like a 5.8. This, this could not be more vanilla. Yeah. It's, just, it's not. Ta- r- rather drink a Miller because oh. it's cheaper. Oh yeah, one thousand percent. I paid two dollars and nine cents for this beer. Yeah. I will enjoy it far less because of that than if I was drinking sixty-seven cent Miller High Life. <laughs> and you know what? Miller High Life probably tastes better. <laughs> I really enjoy High Life. It's just you know, there's just something about it. Yeah, if you're paying, well, that- you know what. Two oh nine. Yeah, I mean, hey, banquet. I, could, I was thinking I could get banquet for eighty-one cents a can. Yeah, get banquet. Nah. No. Yeah, no. Ain't about that life. I feel that. If you go on macro, save your money. It just ain't worth it. Save your money. Yeah. Okay, so I will say, if you want a craft version of like a macro brew like that, like a high life, a light, whatever, the the Back Pew Brewing Company in Porter, Texas, 
Uh, they have one called the Blue Testament. It's just like their classic it's, Pilsner. It's it is, really good. It is such a good Pilsner it beer, is which really is good. which is what all those mass produced Miller Lite, you know, excuse me, Budweiser, Bud Light, you know, all those mass macro produced lagers. That's all they are. Is they're just Pilsner beers. Um, if you want a really craft Pilsner beer that's not gonna like break the bank, I mean, it ain't cheap. I mean, it's not that cheap, but. A Blue Testament by Back Pew Brewing in Porter, Texas, north northeast Houston. That's great. That's like a fruitiness to that on the back end almost. Pure Mexican lager? Mm. Yeah. Money. It's nice. Money. I really like it. All right. So, <clears throat> ecclesiology. Church history. For those of you that may be new around here, um, my first master's degree is in church history. Um, I could talk about church history for days, run circles around church history. Um, if you didn't know anything about church history, here's your heads up. It's messy. It's messy. People are ruthless. They don't reflect Jesus very often. Um, And very quickly out of the gate, the church gets set on the wrong trajectory. So here's the church in history. I'm going to start with a little bit because they don't do it. Um, and I'm you know thinking through and I'm storytelling through the book of Acts this year. Uh, church begins right after Jesus. Jesus most likely dies around the year 29, 30 BC, somewhere around there. Um, and if he dies in 30, in AD 70, 40 years later, Nero, the emperor of Rome, destroys the temple in Jerusalem. That, if you were going to think about it, so the time that Jesus and Paul live in, we call it Second Temple Judaism. Why do we call it Second Temple Judaism, Clayton? Because the, the temple was destroyed and has to be rebuilt. The first temple was destroyed in the Babylonian conquest. And so you have the post-exilic period of Ezra and Nehemiah where they're rebuilding the temple. When they rebuild the temple, that's the temple that we're operating under according to Jesus and Paul. Second Temple Judaism. In A.D. 70, that temple gets destroyed. And things are never the same. Yeah. Because that temple gets destroyed, and then you have this massive fight over that area, um, and things are never the same. Christianity arises as a religion of oppressed people. And this is where it changes. I'm just going to read you a little bit from Ben and Randy. The Roman Emperor, the Roman Emperor Constantine, converted to Christianity in A.D. three twelve, and consolidated the empire in three twenty four. That, that's the moment where we we effed it. 
If you were going to look at if you were going to look at church history from the time Jesus was resurrected and <clears throat> from the time Jesus was resurrected to now, if you were going to look and go, where's the moment where we really just effed it up? It's that one. Yeah. It's Constantine because empire <clears throat> empire the thing that killed Jesus. Mm now connected itself to Christianity. So I, mm-hmm. if, if that's where we effed it up, mm-hmm. what would have been an alternative way to handle this? Let Constantine convert to the system that already worked. Don't let him, because what happens is, let me finish reading. I'll explain. Though he was a benefactor for Christians, it was under a later emperor that the empire officially embraced Christianity. However, with Constantine, the die was cast. Previously, being part of the church produced serious disadvantage or even danger. But in a matter of decades, belonging to the church became a shrewd political move. Mm. That right there. It's the same thing we see in America. It's that people adopt a religion for a political and ulterior motive rather than the true nature of the motive. That's where we messed it. Because when Constantine converted, we let people believe that it was a political move to be associated with a religion. Now, to be fair, people have always done this throughout history, and this is no different than the Catholic Church, right? How many people have been connected to the Catholic Church? How many people that run for presidential and offices and democracies are all connected to the Catholic Church? It's always, religion is always tied to politics. Interesting fact, though. Kennedy was the only president that was Catholic. Oh, in America, my God. Oh, yeah, in America. Oh, South America. In that America. shit ain't true. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. in America. Yeah. Kennedy was the only president that was Catholic. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that. Everybody else is some kind of, you know, Protestant. Other. Yeah, <laughs> Protestant, right? Yeah. Yeah, some kind of Protestant. Most people are Methodist or Lutheran because it's a bunch of rich, wealthy white people. That's the that's the religion of rich, wealthy white people. I don't remember that being true. No, I that's need to absolutely go true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Where did the Bushes go? The Lutheran church, my man. <laughs> All right, here we go. A contrast emerged. Before Constantine, the church was visible. A person could see the gathering of believers following Christ in the face of persecution and suffering, visible to the naked eye as a present reality. After Constantine, the church became invisible. Throngs of citizens came into the church with nominal conversations. For example, Augustine acknowledged his congregation was comprised of genuine believers mixed with unconverted, invisible to the naked eye. The genuine church would be visible again at the end of time. Clayton, do you know when the first time in history we have a recording of a building that is dedicated specifically to the church that's following the way of Jesus, that's not a synagogue? So around 341, about 20 years after Constantine, roughly, 312 is the number they give. That number is debated. But yeah, about 20 to 30 years after Constantine, in the city of, you guessed it, Philippi, an 
it was at that moment when we started putting the church in buildings, the church no longer became visible. Mm. That's what they're saying. Mm. Before Constantine, the kingdom of God was invisible. It took an act of faith to claim that this persecuted church served the true king of the world who would one day bring his kingdom an undeniable victory. As pictured in the book of Revelation, after Constantine, the kingdom, or pseudo-kingdom, was visible. Jesus' name is plastered over all kinds of empire stuff, buildings and arm armies and such. Some saw this as Christianity conquering the empire, whereas others believed that the empire co-opted Christianity. So said many monks. Thus the Crusades, eventually. Oh, wait. I, mean, I know that's coming. I'm sure that's coming. You're jumping ahead. Um, Clayton, what's written on American money? In God we trust. Mm. Thanks for that. Welcome. The church-state tensions introduced here, which reflect wider church culture tensions, will play Christianity throughout history. The use of papal armies or Protestant collusions with the Nazis are key examples of the clear problems of a church too embedded in its culture and too willing to sacrifice its holiness for a seat at the table of power. Secular authorities constantly push the church into a role of subservient to the civic structure. Eventually, the church defines itself in terms of a civic group, like a chaplaincy service. Others, however, rightly see the church as pursuing its holy identity, visibly distinct from civil structures and political aspirations towards power. Constantine could not be a greater example of the problem with the American church. It's literally history repeating mm. itself. Yeah. It could not be a greater example. But you have to be a student of history. And this is what I tell people all the time. Any person that's a student of history, you know, you guys see all of these books. We record these in my apartment. These are all my theology books, and there are two more shelves below these that you can't see. I have two more bookshelves exactly identical to this on that wall over there filled with as many volumes as are over here. My history section is over there. If you are a student of history, you understand that history repeats itself. The American church is repeating the same catastrophe that Constantine and the church did 1,700 years ago. Yeah. It's literally the exact same story. And we're going to see it continue. You're, you could literally watch each of these parallel storytellings happen. Next, Ben and Randy want to talk about the Great Schism, the Eastern and the Western Church. This is such a strange deal. There's a lot of things at play here that are theological. But basically, the big moment happens is when they mutually excommunicate each other. The Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And I want you to notice those labels. One's connected to empire and one's not. This is real revealing of myself. But my soteriology, my belief in salvation is deification slash theosis. As something committed to the Orthodox tradition, nobody except the Orthodox people believe that. 
Notice the Roman Catholic tradition, which is where Protestantism comes out of, attached itself to empire. The Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. The Orthodox said, nah, bro, you're attached too much to the nation state. Huh? The same what we're about. You're embracing power and we should be against power. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Real revealing of myself as a student of church history. The Great Schism takes main effect in 1053, uh, 1054, and it's solidified in 1453. Now, why is it important to note that it's solidified in 1453? Because Luther comes next. In what year is the 95 Theses? Oh, be a better student of history, Clayton. You oh, know this. I don't. I used to remember. You were homeschooled through fundamentalism, this. just like me. You know this answer. I used to know this. Fifteen seventeen. Fifteen seventeen. Thank you. Fifteen seventeen is the year that Martin Luther nails the ninety-five theses to the door. Less than a hundred years after the last church schism mm -hmm. is solidified, we get another one beginning. And why? Why do we get another one beginning? Because the Roman Catholic Church decided to kick Martin Luther out. Martin never wanted to leave. Nope. And in full disparity, I empathize a lot with Martin Luther. I do too. If you did not know, Wellhouse Church began with me as the pastor that guy as support staff, while he was still in college managing another job, we were both working insane hours trying to make all this crap happen. Yep. Me as the pastor, that guy as support staff, and about five other people. That's Wellhouse Church. That's our core team. That's where we came from. Yeah. Um. That's right. That's exactly. That's right. It's exactly where we came. We came from absolute nothing. And we connected to the denomination that bore us, that I was from, that paid for my education. I got, you can't see these. They're out of frame if you're on YouTube. Excuse me. Which if you're not on YouTube, you should come over. That's where all the hype is. Um, over here, on this top shelf, you'll see my bachelor's degree in Christianity. Over there, my master's degree in theological studies. And in one month, almost to the day, I'll be graduating with a second master's degree from Baylor University in, at George W. Truett Theological Seminary. Um, I believe that the church is broken. I believe that the church got mad faults. Yeah. I've been trained to see that by three different, or sorry, technically two different, but my first master's degree comes from a, a seminary at Houston Baptist University. So technically, three different Baptist institutions. Um, I've been trained to notice when the church is at fault. I used my voice to note the church at fault, just like Martin Luther did. And we were kicked out of our denomination. We weren't technically, but we were kicked out of the church planting program. We were kicked out. We were left 
in a situation where they said, hey, you're not worth us giving you money any longer, but we still want you to give us money. Yeah. We want you to stay connected to us, but we don't want to give you any money to help you get started anymore. Um, the church, empire, big institution, metaphorical power kicked out Martin Luther. The church, institution, big power kicked us out of our denomination. I got lots of respect for Martin Luther. He never wanted to leave. They kicked him out. They started that. In the same way, that's that's what I mean. When I say Christianity cannot be a religion of powerful people, it, it screws up the metaphor. It ruins the metaphor. And yet, unfortunately, here in America, that's the predominant metaphor that we've only heard. You see the problems when you get into church history. History repeats itself. That's the main problem. And we will continue to talk about the church. Mm-hmm. We have more episodes coming for the ecclesiology chapter. I could rant and rave about this forever. If you didn't know, Wellhouse Church is a deconstructed church model. I spent a lot of time dreaming up how to try to do this. I spent a lot of really late drunk nights talking to this guy just letting it let, let him let me ramble off ideas and him going bro you really out in left field or actually that's a home run yeah um, that that's actually how that happened we would sit around and drink whiskey and talk about this that's true we would sit around and drink and dream and that's you know, very true at some point it's stuck and it's stuck because the church was broken and yeah. shout out to ben blackwell there's never been a person that more helped me understand that the church was broken than Ben Blackwell. Mm. Um, and I wanted to do something different. So I could talk about this for days, yeah. but if there's one thing I want you to know, taking away from this, this conversation that we're having right now, um, the thing that I want you to know is that the church has forever <laughs> been broken. Yeah. It existed for a grand total. 300 years before it was broken. 300 years. Our country's not even that old. And yet it is dominated by it. Yeah, exactly. Excuse me, friends. If you are continuing to read this book through metaphors of power, if you are continuing to read this book through metaphors where Martin Luther is your hero, Martin Luther himself would tell you, and I can confidently say this because I've read him, um, don't make him a hero. He says the same shit that I say. Mm -hmm. Don't put me on a pedestal because I'm going to knock myself down. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther used to argue with the devil, bro. Like, Martin Luther was on his bullshit too. Uh, We all are just on our bullshit. We're all just human beings trying to make it. And we're trying to pursue divine likeness in some kind of way. Um, and each of us are gifted in certain ways that help us promote certain experiences of the kingdom of God. Me, that so happens to be that I'm a weird ass individual that's a creative and a nerd. And so I've tried to come up and dream up this new way to do church. And maybe I'm naive. Maybe I am. It's working right now though. So I'm not, (laughs) hit me back in 15 years. Um, (laughs) But, um, yeah, come back. 
back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave this podcast right now. Come back in 15 Come years. Come back in 15 years and hit me. <laughs> Don't actually do that, though. <laughs> but um, what, I, what I think church history shows us um, is that the church has existed in a lot of different ways throughout history. And it's continued to be problematic so long as the church continued to be connected to power. When church gave up power and pursued Christ's likeness and humility and sacrifice, the church flourished. Unfortunately, the only experience we've ever seen of that is in the book of Acts. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.